Why is FaceTime so weird, I guess, if you're asking questions? Why is it so difficult to look somebody in the face these days? Uh, I know when I go running, my intention is to make eye contact with every person that runs by me. If you're a runner, sometimes you get into your world, and I'm like, no, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm looking at people and seeing them and acknowledging that they exist, at least waving, saying hi, something along those lines. I guarantee you, you go out and do an experiment today, how many people will actually look up at you, make eye contact with you. Now, if you're walking around like a creeper going, I promise you, your results will be uh, you know, off to begin with. But it's very interesting how we don't like FaceTime. Looking someone dead in the eyes is a very difficult thing to do these days. My son, uh, my third son, Kai, what he did, um, he's two and a half now, about a year ago, his big thing was he would climb up in my lap and he would grab my face, squish it, and look right into mine. It was always kind of weird. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you this close? I mean, okay, yes, awesome. And uh, there was one time he actually, uh, he was mad at me because I had taken something away from him. I had said, no, you can't do that. I had to take something. He got mad. He was like, oh, he was crying. And then he's like, and he holds his hands up to me. And I'm like, that means pick me up. So I pick him up. He grabs my face real tight and says, I want hold you. And I was like, okay, but it was in my face, and that's a whole other topic we could discuss about being angry and still looking at God. But, um, but honestly, the whole thing of FaceTime is very difficult to, to, to talk about in a world, and I believe there's some reasons that why we don't look each other in the eye a lot, and we'll get to that. But honestly, that's the thing that Israel was missing the most with God. When Ezra shows up on the scene, what Israel is missing is FaceTime with God. Uh, Ezra, as, as Sue broke down, had, has, a, has a pretty amazing history in the Jewish culture. I'd encourage you to look him up a little bit. He's a lot bigger deal than we think he is in many different ways. Um, but Ezra was a man who um, got to see and experience the faithfulness of God firsthand. God promised that the people of Israel would return home, and he's getting to live it. He's getting to walk in the faithful promises of God. He's getting to see this firsthand. He's getting to see the temple rebuilt. He's getting to see all of these things that God promised. So Ezra, first and foremost, is a book about God's faithfulness. The big picture is God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. And they're walking home, and he promised them. And so he's getting to experience that. Um, One of the things that's interesting to me about the book of Ezra is it's, it's kind of... It's not super exciting. There's a lot of lists in it, lots of letters going back and forth. There's lists of who came home and lists of stuff that was brought and purchased. And the last chapter of the book of Ezra is a list of all the men who sinned. And I mean, you're like, yes, I'm in the book. No, not cool. Not that way. That's not how you want to be remembered. Um, but Ezra is described in this way in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. Ezra was a scribe who was well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the people of Israel. He was a man who understood the Word of God, who taught the Word of God, who obeyed the Word of God. He discussed the Word of God with people who did not know, and maybe people who thought they knew, but he helped correct their views. Um, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, just a few verses down, it says, The Lord's hand was on Ezra because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. I want you to notice the order. Study, obey, and teach. We got a lot of people willing to study and teach, but not obey. And the power from the Word of God, I mean, every statistic they tell you is you can say a whole lot, but until people see what you live, they don't really care. And it holds true in the Scriptures. Ezra was a man, and it's recorded. I know God does not waste words, so it tells us that he not just studied and taught, but he obeyed the Word of God. 
And he lived it in front of people. And I believe his response is a reflection of him obeying the word of God. Ezra walks in to a situation much like today. Uh, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, this is what we see the people, the leaders coming to him saying. They say, many of the people of Israel, and even some of the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Presidites, Jezebites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Try and say that ten times fast. But the goal was to communicate to Ezra that the people of God have been completely influenced by the culture. Man, it sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Ezra has a lot to do with us today, doesn't it? A people who looked over and saw all these things that they wanted and they forgot about time, face time with the one who rescued them. So, Ezra, a man, walks into this situation. And now, here's the thing. Um, we find out that they disobeyed God first and foremost by marrying outside cultures because God knows men do stupid things for women. They do. And they're not strong enough to say, Woman, I'm not worshiping your God. Because it shows that they did. They worshiped the gods of the women that they married. And God said, don't do that, because I know how your hearts wander from me. And so first and foremost, it was a protection for the people of Israel to go, don't look at the culture, look at me. Don't look at the culture, look at me. And they refused, and they found themselves in a very difficult spot. And it all started with what they were looking at. Um, we see later in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra shows up, uh, and, and Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries, and so there's discussion uh, about when and all this different stuff. But in, Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Ezra um, a part of a huge, what looks like an awesome spiritual awakening in many ways. Uh, but we see on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand he faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand all the people listened closely to the book of the law. Now, Ezra, this is how they read the word of God, the people would be standing for three hours according to the scriptures. So, you're welcome. Second, <laughs> what we see is it wasn't just Nehemiah teaching. Something else goes on in the kingdom, in this situation with the people of God. And we see it in verses 7 and 8, just, just after um, what, we see, what we hear about Ezra. The Levites, and then it names a whole bunch of names, then instructed the, law, the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So you see what's going on here is it's not just some guy talking ahead. It's men going out among the small, smaller groups of people while they stand and helping them break down all the false thoughts that they have, all the, um, the, the, the fact that they didn't understand things, they explained to them for the first time, some of them for the very first time. I bet they dealt with a lot of questions. Now, is this what it means? And to have somebody who was versed in the word of God to be able to stand there and say, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. You totally unpacked that the incorrect way. And so we see God's system for this whole thing of small groups right here. Unpacking it with other people is crucial because when you go off by yourself and you try and do it, you can form wrong thoughts. Did you know that? When you don't have somebody walking with you going, I, I, oh, mm, no, no, that's not a good idea. 
And what you're seeing here is this system of doing it together. See, Ezra was not just about calling individuals to repent, to confess their sin. He was calling a people group back together. I get so tired of hearing I keep my my Christian life private. It is not a private relationship. The gospel is public. It is meant to be lived out among each other and in a world that doesn't get it. So when you say, I just keep my religious life private, I'm not sure what religion you're practicing, especially if you call it Christianity. What we see is it is lived together because we encourage each other on so that we do not cave to sin. There is this togetherness that is called, and it actually causes us to turn from culture and look at God. Um, It's interesting to me to see this because the response of the people when they're hearing the book of the law read is weeping. They begin to weep uncontrollably. They begin to cry. They begin to have their hearts pierced by the word of God because they recognize God is faithful. Because when the book of the law is read, I want you to understand, it's not just read about, the Lord said you shall do this, the Lord said you shall do this, the Lord said you shall do this. The book of the law was remembering God's hand in rescuing the people from Egypt. So all they're hearing is God's faithfulness to a people who didn't deserve it. All they're getting is the gospel, to tell you the truth, even in the Old Testament. Rescue from the bondage of slavery in the Old Testament, and that's what we see in the New Testament. uh, Rescue from slavery from sin in Christ. All of it points to the gospel. That's what the people were pierced by. God, you are faithful to a sinner like me, one who would look at the culture more than you, one who would want things more than you, one who would love things more than you. You still love me. You still pursue me. And there's so much weeping going on that the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah, they all have to go, whoa, 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 stop. Stop weeping. Today we celebrate God's goodness to us. We celebrate what God has done and how he's rescued. So go and celebrate. Be excited. Be excited about what God's done. And so you see in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 12, So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. Friends, I understand, young people in particular, all you students who are in middle school and high school, look at my face right now. I understand if you walk away from gatherings like this with no joy because all you've done is listened. When you understand how much God loves you and pursues you and chases after you, even though you push him away, joy is the result. Students, I get it. I get it when you're bored with the gospel because you've just listened and listened and listened. Adults, same thing. When all you've done is just listened and listened and listened, there is no joy. But when you understand good gravy, you walk away and go, thank you, God. And it's not just a thank you, God. It's God, here's my whole life. Romans chapter 12 says that in light of all God has done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It says, in light of all that God has done for you, present your entire being to him. What's amazing about it is it says, this is your reasonable act of worship. Reasonable, whole life. 
And I tell you this because I struggle when I hear people saying, I don't know about talking about sin. I, I don't know about calling people to their whole life. That's a little much. I struggle when I hear people say, well, I do church in nature by myself. I'm my own church. And I'm like, well, maybe they are. I don't know. I hear all of these thoughts of how things could be and should be. And the church should change the way she says things. I struggle with that. And then I also see how the church responds to the culture who says those things. And they, they, they pound their fists and they kick doors and they hold up signs and they yell. And they, they take all their toys and go home and they build walls. I'm like, is that what we're supposed to do? And when I look at the scriptures, I see a very different picture. I see Ezra respond in one way that I do not think we are very good at. I see Ezra respond in a way that changes everything. It is a game changer if you will take what Ezra did and figure out why it's so powerful. Ezra responds with weeping. And it's not just weeping, weeping like, oh, that's bad, I shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that as a people. It's not cool. Oh, well, we'll let them figure it out. We'll just let them deal with it and wrestle with it and we'll let them figure it out. No, he weeps, falls down. I mean, this is ugly crying. This is not like... (laughs) I mean, it is ugly face. We're not used to that. There are many cultures, that's part of how they deal with mourning, is they go into ugly face crying. And when one mourns over your sin, that should be the most mourning we actually do in light of all God has done for us. And so what we see is weeping. And it wasn't just weeping. Ezra was also known as a man who studied the Word of God, obeyed the Word of God, and taught the Word of God. You want to know why he wept? Because he knew it broke God's heart. It's that simple. Ezra wept because he knew the book of the law. He knew what broke God's heart. And so when he saw this mess, he wasn't like, right on, guys. Keep it up. Maybe I should change up what we're saying. Because, you know, maybe we should try and be more relevant and do cooler things and talk, you know, change up the message. No. Did you see what the Levites did? They took time to clearly explain the word of God to people. That's the one thing we don't do. We just kind of throw it out there and go, all right, deal with it. They clearly explained, and there was joy because people were getting it. Now, when I'm saying weeping, if you've worked in student ministry at any point of time, I I was doing a camp one year, and there was a girl, and I was talking to uh, this table of kids about their experience at camp, and this one girl was like, yeah, you know, camp was okay, but on the third night, I cried. And then I knew camp was awesome. And I was like, what? What did you cry about? She's like, I don't know. And I'm sitting here going, this is not what I'm talking about by weeping. Because I can guarantee you one thing. When Ezra was speaking the word of God to the people, there were no comfy chairs. There were no low lights. There was no soft music playing in the background. It was the word of God and it was punching him in the face. And the heart. And their response was three hours of confession and worship after the word of God was read. It makes you kind of go, oh man, that was an awesome service. What's for lunch? So we do. That's America. 
You know, repentance of sin, confession of sin, conviction of sin is inconvenient. It takes up time. It shifts things around. It moves things out and brings things in. And are we going to be swayed by the culture and love fluffy bunnies and chicken soup for our soul that gets us from one Sunday to the next without caring about the transformation that comes from the power of the Word of God. And I just want to make sure Ezra's weeping wasn't over the sin of people out there. Ezra was weeping over the people who were supposed to be reflecting God. So for those of you that are in this room and maybe you're just checking out Jesus and you have no idea who He is or what He's done... I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of you in this room who claim Jesus is Lord. You said that he's rescued you from sin. You understood that you're a sinner. You understand this, but yet there's no transformation. See, here's the problem. Um, I do hear people talk about, um, let's soften sin. And I, I went through this list of things. I put together some sins that I kind of see as Well, they're things we just kind of let go in the church because we're practical Americans and it's impractical to put sin to death. So I'm just going to list these practical sins. And so if you got, if you want to look at this list, if you don't like conviction of sin, do not read this list. Do not look at the screen. You stay right here. Look at my face right here. But if you're one of those people who like, I buck all the authority system, you're going to look at that list. So I tricked you anyway. So the point is, these are, I was getting killed and filleted and shredded by going through the scriptures and just going, hey, these are the things that we kind of treat as, eh, not a big deal. And I want you to ask yourself a question as you look at this list. Because I don't want you to be a person who's like, oh, well, I'm done. I'm over. It's over. Done. No hope. Nothing. Because you're forgetting something. You're forgetting about the one who paid the price for you allowing this to remain present. And so the question is, is this an occasional thing you struggle with? Is it frequent? Or is it a characteristic that marks your life? And the question becomes, are you going to allow the culture to tell you this is acceptable, or are you going to be a person who looks at the Word of God and says, God, I want to weep over what you weep over. And first and foremost, it's here. I've heard it said that the best accountability partners you can have in life are ones who hate their sin more than yours. Because they're the people who are going to be honest with you and walk with you and sharpen you and help you and encourage you. See, the problem with dumbing down sin and watering down sin goes like this. I don't see a problem with sin. I don't see a need for rescue. I don't see a need for Jesus. Without talking about sin, there's no conviction of sin, no confession of sin, no repentance of sin, and altogether we see Jesus as very tiny. And he becomes this other thing in this list of other things you can look at. We can't. We cannot remove the discussion of sin because it is the thing that drives us to the Savior. Um, Ezra chapter 9, verse 6. This is Ezra's response when he walks in and sees what he sees. Oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. 
I can tell you why we don't like to look people in the eye. It's because of what we know is going on. We're afraid that if we make eye contact with somebody, they'll know. (laughs) And you're wondering, what do I do with all of this? What do I do with this stuff that I can't lift my head and look somebody in the face with? Well, it's very interesting. Jesus has three different encounters. One, he has an encounter with a, uh, a man named Simon, who's a Pharisee. And at this dinner party that he has, a woman busts down the door and she just starts to pour oil on Jesus' feet. And the Bible says that her tears start flowing and she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And Simon is like, dude, if this guy knew anything, he would know that this woman is a prostitute. This woman gets around. This woman is not clean. And Jesus looks at him and says, those who are forgiven much love much. You see, Simon didn't think he had anything to be forgiven of. So he did not love well. We see this humility, this broken woman coming before Jesus, and his response to her is, go, you've been forgiven. We see another story that Jesus tells, a very popular one of the prodigal son or the extravagant father. Who's the one who is reconciled to the father? The son who comes home in his mess and says, I have sinned against you and against God. And there is reconciliation. They are brought back together. But the proud older brother stays arrogant. We don't know. We don't know what happens to him. And then we see the self-righteous Pharisee who walks into the temple and he's like, check out all the money I'm giving. What, what? Uh." And then we see this sinner of a tax collector not even lift his eyes to heaven. And he simply says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says he's the one who goes away forgiven. 1 Peter 5.5 says, the Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And humility starts when I go, I am a sinner in the eyes of a very amazing God. Proverbs 3.34 is actually what 1 Peter 5.5 5 is quoting, but it says this, The Lord mocks the mockers, but is gracious to the humble. So those of you who are carrying something, the step is let it go at Jesus' feet. Weep if you have to weep, but be reminded of the goodness of God. It is right to weep. It is right to confess sin. It is right to confess sin to one another. Not to shame, but to bring healing, according to the scriptures. But it's not just about weeping. It's not just about confession of sin. It's about transformation. Colossians chapter 3 says this. And it's the strangest of ways to battle that list of sins. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds, but put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Eh. 
become like him. You see, Ezra was intentional about his time in the Word of God, and very simply, the best way I can explain it is this. There are times, a few times in life, where I have to dress up, and Doreen and I are going out to a nice dinner. And I walk into the room as she's finished getting ready, and she subtly says, you going to wear that? <laughs> Those of you that, you know what they're saying when they say that. I'd like you to change. I believe that we have a choice when we're faced with the Word of God. When we sit with the Word of God, hopefully it's in the mornings, hopefully it's at a certain point, and ultimately the Scriptures look at us and say, are you going to wear that today? Are you going to choose anger? Are you going to choose bitterness? Are you going to choose lust? Are you going to choose all of that? You really want to wear that out. Or, as the Scriptures say, put on your new nature. Be renewed as you learn to know your creator and what? Become like him. See, you were saved from hell, but saved for God. That you were meant to reflect the image of Christ. You see, people look, you know, it's funny because when people watch my children, they like to tell me, oh man, Jason, Kai made this face and I saw your face in his face. I'm like, that's a really weird statement, but whatever. Zeke, he made this facial expression and it looked just like you. Can I just tell you that children reflect their daddies? And we are called God's adopted sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. And I'm telling you, you spend time with him, you start looking like him. It just happens. It is the strangest of ways to put to death sin. It's not, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. It's no, I want more of you. That's how you put to death sin. There's some students that I want to introduce you to. Um, we, in the student ministry, I'm always trying to find ways to help kids get in front of Christ. I feel like if I can just sit them in front of Jesus, he'll deal with the things. He will walk with them. He will show them. He will instruct them because he's done it for me. And so we came, I came up with this thing called the cast, and, and there's an image that you'll see on the screen, um, and it's, it's Han Solo's carbonite freezing, but it's the only thing I could think of to, to kind of fully display it. Um, but we call it the cast, not because of a musical group or because they're in this thing. The desire for the cast is simply to be formed into the image that whatever that moldable liquid might be, to be formed into that image. And they practice, every month, they practice a different spiritual discipline, whether it be fasting, giving, secrecy, reading God's word. They actually had to handwrite the book of John one month. And it was just getting them in front of Jesus. It's not religious. It's not legalistic. It's just going, it's voluntary and it's intentional. There are no such thing as accidental Christ followers. You must be intentional. And if you're running to religion and saying, oh, that's religious, you're missing it. Anyways, I want to show you, give you some of the words that the kids had for what their experience in the cast has been, uh, and then we'll get ready to close up. Um, for that game, mostly kind of since I've been doing it for the last three years, uh, more of a regimented way of following Christ, like 
having a daily Bible study and stuff like it's given me the tools and stuff to have a more structured way of going after things, which is great for me because I, if I don't have a structure, I just kind of give up. The cast really helped me uh, put into practice something daily and really gave me a sense of like, like Jesus is Jesus is always like they said at kids camp, like he's always there. He's not just sporadic and random, like my old Bible study thing was. He's always there, always ready to teach you something. What I have gained from being in the cast is really um, getting into God's Word and really praying about everything I do and asking God before I do it. And really being able to preach to everyone and um, like I'm in public school and it has really helped me to be more like out of my shell and tell everybody about Christ. The most challenging discipline was definitely the giving one. You know, the church is going through the um, giving series and just that I, at the beginning of it, I thought it was going to be easy because I had no money and I'm still just a student, but after recently getting a job and actually having money, it's, it was tough because the, I'm sure you know that the first summer you ever have money and stuff, you want to just do everything. You know, the last thing on your mind is to give tithe and stuff, but it helped a lot for early on for me being the master of the money and not master the money being my master. My favorite cast assignment was probably the assignment where we had to do SOAP, S-O-A-P, scripture, um, uh, observation. observation, application, and prayer. That helped me a lot with the whole Bible study thing. The most challenging one that I did was definitely writing the book of John. That was really hard because my hands hurt a lot when I write. My favorite discipline that I've done was probably writing John, the book of John, because I actually got to go through it without, I don't know, just getting to go through it and write it and have it now in my own handwriting. It's pretty cool. I think my favorite discipline that we did with the cast was, uh, I think it was the first time we did the cast, and it was where we had to read the Bible 30 minutes every day. And this one was my favorite because it was when I feel like the Word of God actually came alive to me. And for the first time, I felt like I could hear God's voice. And so that one's my favorite because that's where I feel like God really began to speak to me. Why you should consider doing a cast next year is because the discipline really helps. The discipline's good. And the reward is good. <laughs> But the discipline is a sacrifice now, but an investment for later in your life. Okay, reasons why you should do the cast is, number one, helps you have discipline through the roof. Like, before I would sleep until 9 o'clock and not do any Bible study, but now I'm waking up and doing Bible study, walking my dog and doing all this stuff. It doesn't help with just Jesus, it helps with everything being focused in your life. Number two... It just makes you happier during the day, like doing a Bible study in the morning and just all assignments just make you feel accomplished or just bright during the day. And number three, 
you get to do it with a bunch of people who are really awesome. Everybody who does it with you are like the best. Yeah, absolutely. In the three years that they've done it, they've also memorized Ephesians uh, chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, and Romans chapter 5. Um, they've been memorizing, the, and the list of disciplines that I've put them through is crazy. Um, and for those of you that are like, oh, that's just religious, well, let me read this to you. If your practice of the personal spiritual disciplines doesn't result in more joy, there's a problem. So for those of you in this room that look at the disciplines as drudgery, there's a heart disconnect. A lot of these kids were motivated by the reward trip at the end of the year. And I, I didn't, they're not asking for this, but I said I'd ask. Um, some of them are still raising funds to go on this trip. And if you feel led, like you want to you wanna help get them there, please see me afterwards. If you'd like to financially support them, I'm no shame in asking and helping celebrate these kiddos and what they've accomplished over the last couple of years. And so if you'd like to, if you'd like to help them get on those trips, please see me afterwards um, because I would love to see a church get behind kids who are practicing the disciplines and attempting to go, Jesus, I want to reflect you. I want to reflect you in this culture. And so as the band is coming, uh, we're going to close with some time to just look at him. Um, and I say look at him because we have a choice as a church. And this choice comes around all the time. 250 years ago in slavery-filled England, William Wilberforce sees a culture infecting the church. You've seen the, if you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, it kind of tells his story about fighting for the freedom of the slaves in, in England. But they don't really give you a concept of how Christ gospel-centered he was in that movie. So he wrote a book for this middle and upper class English folk who were practicing cultural Christianity in his mind. And what the first thing he says to them is, I would like to address the problem of the faulty ideas many people have regarding the importance of authentic faith. You might think that if you consider yourself a good person and are against bad things, your faith is adequate. The fact is, you might not be a Christian at all, but simply a moral person. You see, the battle against looking at the culture versus looking at God 250 years ago is present. Roughly 130 years later, a man named Watchman Nee, who I respect and look up to in many ways, wrote a book called The Normal Christian Life. The normal Christian life. And look what he says. The Apostle Paul gave us his own definition of the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I, but Christ. Here, he is not stating something special or peculiar. A high level of Christianity. He is, we believe, presenting God's normal for a Christian, which can be summarized in the words, I live no longer. But Christ lives his life in me. Here we are, a hundred, roughly a hundred years later, same struggle, same difference, same, same concepts, culture saying, church, you need to change. And the church going, okay. Acting as if we don't have creator God dwelling in us. Fearful, afraid. And I'm not asking us to respond this way. I'm asking us to respond this way. Lord, please, have your way in me. Lord, I want to weep over what you weep over. I'm tired of walking with these thoughts that I know better. 
And I want to have the attitude of the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the deal. All of this, all of this desire to pursue the things of God is rooted in his pursuit of us first. There are some of you who are going to try and go home and be more disciplined. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm just asking you to sit at his feet. So you go, Jesus, what do you want to speak to me, to my head? It might make its way to my heart and cause transformation. Because the goal of a Christian is not to be saved from hell. But God's plan for us is to reflect his image. We just happen to get heaven because of the cross. And it's because of that cross that those sins that we have allowed to be acceptable can be put to death. Christ bore those sins on his body, took our punishment, lived the life we should have lived, and was raised from the dead to prove that he is who he said he is. And the Bible says that all who believe that Christ is the promised one of God shall have life forever. And friends, that's just, that's diving into the pool. You get to go the rest of your life exploring the depths and the riches of the gospel. And so this morning, I'd like you guys to stand with me. I don't know where you're at this morning. I have absolutely no clue what you walked in here with or what you're going to walk out there with. But if the Lord is causing you to respond and to repent, that's what the Bible says, that we are to change the way we think about ourselves and about God. How do you change the way you think about yourself? You stop thinking you're in control. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first thing is those who realize they don't have it all together. Welcome to the kingdom. Then we see a transformation in a people that is so supernatural, it's ridiculous. Holy Spirit moves, shapes, transforms, convicts, and we stay in that because of his love for us first. So as we're singing, as we're worshiping, maybe you might feel a need to get on your knees or come forward or have people pray with you, or maybe you need to get connected to a jail group because you're like, I'm just doing this by myself thing. I don't really care about people. I want to invite you to jail group. I want to invite you to connect. I want to invite you to invest in the mission of Jesus in this city through being a part not feeling like church and small group, that's just an option. If something better comes along, I'll go to it. But to say these, this is my family. Because the blood of Christ brings us together. Maybe you're someone who's not disciplined and you're like, I need to be disciplined in the ways of seeking after Christ. Come chat with me. We'll figure something out. Come chat with Shannon, come chat with Jazz or any of these gel group leaders that are in here. But don't let your heart grow hard. It's the worst thing you can do is stand and do nothing. Jesus, thank you for loving us first. May you be lifted high in this moment.